Hello podcast listeners, Duncan here. This is just a little bit of a content warning. This episode of Primitive Culture looks at sexual assault as depicted in Star Trek. Uh, We don't go into any particularly um, graphic detail or anything, but obviously this is a topic which could be triggering for some listeners, so do listen advisedly. Also, we found when we were recording, we had a lot to say. So I'm going to split the conversation over the next two episodes of Primitive Culture rather than dumping one huge and probably quite depressing episode on you all at once. Anyway, it's a difficult topic and um, I hope not too difficult to listen, but I hope you find it as interesting and enlightening uh, listening to this conversation as we did researching it and uh, talking about this important topic. This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a blast from the past. It's Clara Cook. Hi Clara, how are you? Hi Duncan, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Uh, it's been quite a while since we've been podcasting together, I think. Almost a year. I know, I know. It's crazy. It's good to have you back on the show. Good to, to get you back and hopefully we'll be able to tempt you back a few more times over the <laughs> you know, yeah. coming months and years and, and so on. Um, Long-time listeners will maybe not be surprised to know that uh, with Clara back on the show, you and I, Clara, had a bit of a reputation for picking the most depressing (laughs) topics on primitive culture. Somehow that's what it always came up to, uh, one way or another, and we've gone for another one, I'm afraid. So steal yourselves. This is not going to be a jolly, (laughs) light-hearted episode, I don't think. Um, But this is actually a topic that we had been planning to do um, when you were a regular co-host on primitive culture. And I did, in fact, I did all the research for it then. I feel like I've had to go and watch some of these extremely depressing episodes. I've, I've had to go and watch twice this year because oh, <laughs> no. we were planning to record this. And then uh, you had, you know, other stuff going on in your life and, and so on. So we kind of put it on the back burner. But uh, at least, you know, hopefully I'm not going to have to watch these episodes again for a good while, I think, because they are <laughs> some of the more um, uh, distressing ones in some ways uh, and, and often slightly depressing ones as well to watch. Um, but But really... So what we're looking at really today is kind of um, sexual assault, essentially, uh, in Star Trek. And we were inspired very much when we first started talking about this by the Me Too movement and the kind of stuff that was coming out then and the way that people were talking about stories um, of sexual assault in their own lives in a way that they kind of hadn't been before. I mean, we're a couple of years on, I guess, now from that. But could you, Clara, just for our listeners who 
maybe their memories are a bit rusty or they, they kind of weren't uh, following it as much as, as, as they might have been at the time. Just give us a little bit of background on sort of what the Me Too movement was, where that came from and, and what its kind of lasting implications have been. Certainly. So um, the Me Too movement is an international movement against sexual harassment um, and sexual assault. The phrase Me Too was originally used in 2006 by activist Tarana Burke. And I kind of wanted to mention her name because I think she really is the originator, the inventor really of the movement. Uh, but it actually became viral in October 2017 when Alyssa Milano uh, tweeted basically uh, in response to allegations about Harvey Weinstein, the producer, the Hollywood producer, um, that, you know, if you've ever been a victim of sexual assault or sexual harassment, you know, basically tweet me too and say, me too, and basically what happened to you? Sort of in solidarity to all the women who have come forward with allegations. Uh, and after the exposure of the sexual abuse allegations against Harvey Weinstein um, in 2017, this basically spiraled and became viral online. Um, and it's led to a lot of media coverage and discussion of sexual assault. Uh, it can now mean other things as well than other than just sexual assault, like sexual harassment in the workplace, uh, especially uh, also the sexual harassment of ethnic minorities and that kind of thing. And it's encompassed a whole range of different sectors. It led to allegations, exposure, uh, actual convictions and stuff uh, across sectors such as Hollywood, uh, different churches, education sector, uh, political sector, the finance sector, the professional sports industry, uh, the medicine um, industry and STEM sector. Um, and even even the uh, field of astronomy, which I didn't know about until I was reading about this. And I was like, oh, wow, people in astronomy. I don't know why I'm surprised, let's be honest. But um, there are bad people in every sector, basically. <laughs> bad people in every sector. Um, and so hashtag me too is trended in at least 85 different countries across the world. Uh, it's quoted a lot in um, popular culture and in news media now uh, and has led to generally, I would say, more awareness of the fact that people do regularly experience sexual assault or or sexual harassment in the workplace uh, and in life but a lot of it's centered around the workplace uh, and it's also led to um sort of more awareness of the fact that also men experience um sexual harassment too so a couple of high profile men have come out in hollywood explaining that they were um either sexually assaulted or sexually harassed by other men in Hollywood, which is something that I think would probably be is still to this day quite taboo. Um, so yeah, it has actually led to quite a lot of change. Whether it's led to a lot of systematic change, I mean, when I was reading, maybe in other parts of the world where women are still in positions um, of subordination in society, like women don't have equal freedom um, with men. I was reading in a conjunction with this as well, that the Me Too movement hit Afghanistan and they were saying that they estimate that up to 90% of women in Afghanistan have experienced sexual harassment or assault, which is huge, 90%. Uh, and actually the response to that in Afghanistan has been pretty poor. The, uh, so whether or not it's actually leading to systematic change worldwide, long-term, um, is yet to really be determined, but it's certainly led, led to a change in the entertainment industry, I think. And it's definitely led, led to a change in certain institutions in the Western world. And to awareness, I suppose that's the main thing that it's done is it has brought more attention to these kind of stories. It has brought more kind of awareness. I mean, 
because I think, and, and you mentioned uh, men, and that's absolutely a very important part of it, but it is probably kind of numerically a much smaller, uh, I mean, I, would, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I would fairly confidently state that the number of men, uh, the, the percentage of men who've experienced some kind of, you know, serious sexual assault compared to the percentage of women is going to be very different. I mean, it is kind of a gendered issue. That's not to discount those male stories, and those are very important. And they were a big um, part of that movement as well, um, to recognise that those things happened. Many of those things happened to men as well. But I think for a lot of women in the entertainment industry, particularly, it was almost kind of standard. I mean, you know, we have all sort of heard of the kind of stories of the casting couch and this kind of thing, but there is absolutely, you know, was almost it's some kind of harassment is almost kind of seen as part of the job but when it comes to these kind of you know often very serious allegations of rape sexual assault and so on i think part of what that movement did is really made a lot of people realize i mean i imagine for a lot of women it provided a sense of kind of solidarity um and that was a big part of it but i think for a lot of men also it was quite shocking i mean i was quite surprised by it and i say that as someone who you know, so growing up over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, just from talking to women in my life and hearing stories that they had told me that I you know, wouldn't have imagined necessarily had been, had sort of gradually been thinking, wow, these, these kind of stories are more common than we take them to be, if you know what I mean. A lot more people have experienced some kind of serious sexual assault than you might realise. But I think the Me Too uh, movement absolutely kind of crystallised that because it was a case of, you know, it seemed like almost everyone had a story to share. And I think that was a kind of a bit of an eye opener in a way as to just how um, widespread these problems are. Very different, interestingly, to how they're presented in Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek actually deals with sexual assault quite a lot. uh, If you look you know, all the way over the kind of 50 odd years of Star Trek. But it's nearly always represented as something very unusual that hasn't happened for hundreds of years or that kind of is, is it, or there's kind of extenuating or exceptional circumstances. There's something strange, you, you know, it involves some kind of psychic phenomena or it involves some kind of, um, you know, interaction with some, you know, maybe with a, a very different culture, like the, um, say, Return of the Archon, something like that, you, you know, with these kind of, the, the, the sort of cultural milieu is very different. What we find in the real world is it's, you know, it might not be up to the same levels as in Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever, but even in the Western world, the levels are alarmingly high. And there's also a kind of question about how these cases are prosecuted. I think one of the reasons that a lot of people, and particularly men, maybe underestimate the extent of of these kind of things is because of the tiny, tiny fraction of them that actually go through the kind of criminal justice system and end up with the prosecution. And we see that in Star Trek as well. I mean, often in these Star Trek episodes, um, I'm thinking of the episode Fusion in uh, Enterprise, for example, which I think, you know, does try to sort of fairly seriously deal with this issue of basically sexual assault kind of in this kind of mind meld, uh, psychic assault kind of framework, which is what Star Trek often does, sort of deals with these things kind of allegorically. But at the end of the episode, Archer basically just gets rid of the Vulcans. There's no, there's no prosecution. There's no way of dealing with it. And there's no real sense um, that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that T'Pol had been through this experience. It's probably not something she's going to go around talking about a lot. This is something we know, obviously, as the viewers. Archer knows because he's been involved in the in the situation and trying to help her and so on. But I suppose the fact that because the kind of rates of conviction and the rates of even of prosecution are so low, it means that these stories are not necessarily widely known. And, you know, people shouldn't feel they have to share these stories if they don't want to. I mean, they're very private and very distressing uh, things to talk about. But I was kind of struck just recently, there was a a report a couple of weeks ago um, about the uh, 
criminal justice system here in the UK, uh, which said that basically the, the system was close to breaking point, was the phrase that it used. And that after um, 58,657 allegations of rape made in the year ending March 2019, only 1,925 successful prosecutions followed, which gives you a kind of idea of the enormous odds stacked against someone who, even who reports a rape or a sexual assault, of actually getting any kind of justice to come back. And I suppose that's one of the reasons that maybe we haven't talked, I haven't heard so much about these stories is because, you know, I was going to say women, it is usually women, but men as well, realise that, you know, there's this sense of, okay, this awful thing's happened to me. Is it worth going through this process where I'm probably not going to get, it's going to be very traumatic and difficult. I'm not going to get anything out of it anyway. And I suppose maybe the Me Too movement was a way of kind of saying, well, okay, these guys might not be going to go to prison or whatever, but we can at least kind of share these stories. We can share that this is happening. We can raise awareness. Um, But one of the questions I have really is, I mean, it has opened people's eyes. Has it really changed things in practical terms? Because we see people like Trump, we see someone like uh, Kavanaugh, the the you know Supreme Court uh, justice in the United States, and th- that was a situation where it sort of felt like this is a post Me Too moment. You know, this is going to go differently. This man is not going to be allowed to uh, be given this role, this respectability, given these allegations against him. And yet, it didn't seem to stop him at all. You know, he kind of went through as it was. And the very brave woman who was, you know, testifying uh, about what had happened to her, you know, allegedly, I suppose I should say, giving very convincing testimony, I would say, about what what this man had done. Ultimately, it didn't seem to count for anything. And even Weinstein, you know, recently, we've seen him out and about in Hollywood again, attending sort of functions and so on. And almost, you know, we know he sort of paid off a number of the people who brought cases against him. There's sort of this sense, well, are these men just getting away with it, just just as they always have done. Because if you look at those statistics on rape prosecutions, you would think basically men who rape women, or, or probably who rape other men as well, statistically they get away with it. Um, yeah, so I have a very firm opinion about this, which, you know, I mean, it's my opinion, so you could take it with a grain of salt, I suppose. But uh, my opinion is that I think that, like you said, these are quite gendered crimes or gendered assaults. Obviously, the statistics that we have about men committing sexual assaults towards other men or men being victims of sexual assault um, perpetrated by women um, are dodgy statistics. And the reason why that's because men don't actually come forward and disclose whether they've been sexually assaulted, abused or raped. Uh, it, On average, it takes about 26 years for a man to come forward and um, disclose that he's been the victim of a sexual assault or rape or abuse. So uh, it's quite possible that there are men out there who are being sexually assaulted um, and we never know about it because they don't ever say. Um, but yeah, statistically, it, does, it you know, women are more likely to be the victims of sexual assault than men. And so I think it is quite gendered. I think the thing is that that's one, it's a crime that affects a lot of women, mostly women. And um, anything that I believe, anything that really affects mostly women in our society um, is something that's deemed to be not as important as something that mostly affects men. I think you find that in the medical field with stuff like um, gynecological health, you know, or medical trials where they trial a drug on mostly male test subjects and they deem it as success when it only really works on men and not women. And, um, and you know, it's, well, if it only works on 50% of the population, then it isn't a medical success, you know? So I think because it is something that is gendered, I think you find that 
people aren't as concerned. If Trump had openly murdered a man, I think he'd be, there'd be much more outrage. I'm not saying there isn't outrage. There is outrage. But it's this idea that, well, these men are in power. The system is a system that's made up of men in power, supported by other men in power. Um, and that these men will protect each other and protect themselves. Um, and that you're not going to be believed because you're a woman. And, um, you know, well, all he did was grab some woman, um, or he, fiddled with some woman and it doesn't, you know, and, um, it doesn't, um, matter because he didn't really hurt anybody, you know? So I think this, the crime of sexual assault is sometimes, or sexual rape is sometimes seen as a lesser crime than say, for instance, murder. Um, because it's a crime that's committed primarily against women. And I think one of the ways this would change would be if you had much more gender equality in sectors, um, and positions of power. If the p- top people, um, in a university were both equally male and female, you wouldn't have like a system of senior male professors or, you know, male academic registrars or whatever that could protect any of the men that accuse of sexual assault. Um, if you had more women in government, then you wouldn't have, um, you know, like a system where men had power who could protect other men. And I think part of the problem with um, systematic change is it takes a long time, you know. So the Me Too movement is a beginning, it's a spark, but it's it's not going to solve everything overnight. And the thing about the Me Too movement that really struck me was that it's not any of this is new, you know. Like, I think sometimes some of the people I talk to, they're like, wow, I didn't know this, this is so new. Like, this is something that's new. It's not new. I mean, women have been sexually assaulted and abused and raped for ever but it's that the me too movement was a bit like saying actually we don't have to accept it um and that we can support each other in solidarity in not accepting it and that that idea that like your boss is going to sexually harass you but you just have to put up with it because he's the one in power he's the one that has um the control over your job he's the one that you know has male colleagues who are all going to protect him um, and that if you, if you make an allegation, who's going to believe you? The Me Too movement kind of addressed that by saying, well, actually, what if? What if he was held to account? And actually, you don't have to put up with this. Like, this isn't something that's just like part of the system, part of the old way, whatever. So I think it's been good in raising exposure, but as long as we have a society where positions of key, key positions of power are held by men, um, and only men, and I would say in anywhere across the world, you're going to have a situation where more men with se- who have been sexual abusers or sexual predators are always going to succeed. I don't think you can hold, I don't think you can, you can just hold men accountable to other, other men. Like it's got to be like something that the whole of society and gender equality holds accountable, if that makes sense. The, the main issue with a lot of this stuff to do with sexual assault as well is some of the victims of sexual assault. I wouldn't say necessarily just in Hollywood. I would say across across the world. Sometimes uh, some of the victims, are, I mean, anyone could be a victim of sexual assault. And what we see in media and we see actually in Star Trek is a lot of the perpetrators of sexual assault or rape are strangers to the main characters. But that's actually not true. Um, a high percentage of sexual assault is committed by somebody you know. You know, that could be your flatmate. That could be your brother's friend. That could be your cousin. That could be, you know, a family member. That could be a work colleague, you know. But in some of these cases, I think high profile cases, sometimes people who are 
I mean, not in the case of Kavanaugh, of course, but um, some, in some of these high-profile cases, the women who are reporting sexual assault can sometimes be like they're seen as like actresses, or in the case of Trump, maybe you know it's it's as a woman who's seen as slightly unsavory. You know, um, it's very easy to sort of put these women down. It becomes about kind of character, doesn't it? And it becomes about yeah. sort of victim blaming and all these kind of things. And I suppose one of the issues is, I mean. One of the difficulties with prosecuting uh, rape and sexual assault is that there's, I suppose with most crimes, there's there's kind of categorical proof that a crime has been committed. And the question is, who did it? And can you prove that it was that person? With rape, it more often comes down to a, a argument about whether it was a crime or not. Do you know what I mean? So so there'll be a situation where the man is saying, oh, well, she consented and changed her mind or, or you know, whatever it is. And that is much harder to kind of, prove evidentially i suppose and then it becomes about all this kind of interpretation and victim blaming and and all these kind of things but i mean it's interesting i think i think you're absolutely right it'd be better if there was more of a kind of gender balance uh, across all these these areas and so on on the other hand i was quite shocked many years ago there was a tv show here in the uk where they staged they basically staged uh, a rape trial with actors uh, but it was based on a lot of research and, and into, into genuine trials, I think. And I can't remember what the situation was. It, it was something like, you know, a woman who'd gone out with some footballers or something and, and one of them had raped her. But the jury was 12 like members of the public, basically, who'd, who'd volunteered to be on the show. So it had a kind of reality element to it. So a big part of the programme was just in the jury room, basically seeing the discussions going on. And it wasn't necessarily the women who were supportive of this woman in this situation. It was actually... You, you know, often the, you know, there was one sort of slightly older woman, I remember in particular, who was the most judgmental of this young woman for the, you know, decisions that, you you know, and maybe she'd, you know, made decisions that in retrospect, she would have made differently or whatever that had kind of, you know, led into this situation or whatever. But, um, you know, she was the one sort of saying, well, you know, you know, she, if she didn't want this to happen, she shouldn't have done this. Or, you know, why was she wearing that dress? Or do you know what I mean? All these kind of comments. Um so it's kind of, it's sort of systemic in a way, you know, these kind of attitudes, these kind of assumptions. And I suppose maybe a big part of the Me Too movement was about kind of reclaiming the sort of discussion around these issues to some extent and sort of saying, you know, we want people's stories to be heard. We will believe these stories, you know, unless there's a very good reason not to or whatever. Um, but, but broadly speaking, we believe these stories because the fact is people don't typically make up these stories, you know, there's a kind of, and we can talk about that again in relation to Star Trek because there's a, an episode of Voyager, um, that, that deals with that particularly badly. I think this idea of people sort of fabricating, yeah, uh, stories I of sexual assault. It's absolutely, I think pro- possibly amongst these many quite problematic episodes, the most problematic because, yeah. um, that's the episode retrospect, which is basically about seven accusing a guy of assault and then it turning out that he didn't, he didn't do it. And it's, you, you know, she got it wrong. And it, that in itself is a very, uh, unhelpful story to be telling really because you know that and there is that kind of panic i think um that a lot of men seem to have of you know someone's going to accuse me of sexual assault but um really the the bigger problem as we know is that the many very credible cases of sexual assault are not being prosecuted or not being believed the, the the balance is totally you know in the other direction so before um we go on i think we can't talk about this subject without talking about consent um and i'm not going to go on about it too much but i thought i would just give the uk legal definition it's been like summarized down because i'm not going to read the whole 
UK legal <laughs> uh, situation, but um, it's been summarised down about actually what consent is. And I think it might be worth remembering that as we go through all these episodes and we go through Star Trek, because um, people are quite confused about what consent means. But legally, consent is defined as agreeing by choice and having the freedom and capacity to make that choice. So it's not just agreeing. You know, it's not just saying, yes, I will have sex with you. Yes, I do want to. It's actually having the freedom and the capacity. So if you're unconscious, you don't have the capacity to give consent. And if the freedom, I mean, there's lots of ways in which you might not have the freedom to give consent financially or in the situation like in DS9, um, in wrongs darker than death or night, death or night. Thank you. Um, you got a question. How many of those Bajoran women? have the freedom to give consent. So, I mean, technically, once I learned this and I started reading around it, I was like, actually, technically, anyone who's involved, like, in the sex trade, I mean, I know there are a lot of women involved in the sex trade who may disagree with that, um, and I wouldn't want to necessarily, you know, put a label on anything or determine, you know, um, what women choose or don't choose to do. But if you're financially desperate and you are a comfort woman in a wartime situation or you're financially desperate and you know, you desperately need drugs. Um, and the only way to pay for your drugs is to go out and prostitute yourself. I'm not sure that's the freedom to consent really, is it? Like you don't have the freedom to choose to do something else financially. So consent, it's an interesting thing. It's not, it's not simply just yes or no. And what you'll see in TV and you'll see in Star Trek as well as you'll see women saying no 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 but if the woman lies there and is unresponsive or if she cries or if she just freezes and does nothing which is actually a fight or flight response actually um that could also be taken as not consenting um and you have to have the capacity too if you're unconscious and your mind's being raped by some Vulcan that's not <laughs> you don't have the capacity to consent you know um so that's worth remembering that consent is agreeing, having the capacity and the freedom to be able to consent. And we don't, of course, I mean, since this whole uh, movement really started with Weinstein, and obviously the, the allegations against Weinstein were a mixture of, I mean, various women who'd accused him of rape, but also a lot of women who'd accused him of totally inappropriate sexual behaviour and of kind of... Uh, sort of bargaining for sex, essentially, you know, saying to them, oh, uh, if you don't you know, do whatever it is I want to to do with you. Um, it's like coercion. I'll basically. sabotage your career. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, someone with that kind of power who can literally, you, you know, uh, make or break um, a young woman's career. Uh, so absolutely a situation of enormous power. And of course, we don't hear, you know, we've heard from the women who've basically told him to get lost and sort of stood up to that. The fact he was doing this over many years, it, it must have worked in many scenarios for him and those women who probably have very you know unpleasant and difficult um experiences and memories are not i think the ones coming forward for understandable reasons so there's you know there's, it's almost like the tip of the iceberg are the ones who are saying yeah he tried this on me and i told him to get lost and and then i you know didn't get my film contract that i was hoping for because there's also got to be a lot of women who who did go along with whatever it was that he wanted um because they felt they you know, to some extent had no choice, a very compromised choice because their entire career was on the line or whatever. And we see that as well. I mean, in the, you know, even within Star Trek, probably the most, uh, one of the most well-known sort of behind the scenes storylines going right back to the original series with, with, was with Grace Lee Whitney, who played Janice Rand. And if you read her uh, autobiography, um, 
she opens the autobiography actually with this really shocking story of basically how she came to leave Star Trek. And it was this, she was, she'd been filming, as it turned out, I think her penultimate episode, and it was at the after party. And one of the executives from Star Trek, uh, persuaded her to, go go off to another building with him and go into an office on their own on the pretense that he wanted to talk about her character and wanted to kind of help her professionally essentially and, and say you know i want to i want to do some um role play with rand and kirk and work out where we can take this character of rand going forward because we think she's a really interesting character and in fact of course it was just a pretext for him to play captain kirk sort of lusting over janice rand uh, and ended up um making her take off all her clothes and ended up um getting her to perform oral sex on him. But the way she described it, she was just at a certain point, she realised she'd sort of fallen into this trap, as she put it. And and not so much, I mean, A, there must have been an, an element of kind of, this This guy's one of the bosses, I don't know what to do. But also she was just terrified. She said she thought she could end up dead. Do you know what I mean? And she said, as far as she was concerned, the priority was uh, she had to do what he said because they were in an empty building on their own, basically. You know, he was much bigger and stronger than her and so on. And she felt extremely unsafe, even though she was very visibly unhappy and, um, you know, not in any way a willing participant, but she felt trapped in that situation. One of the things that really struck me when I was actually reading that account was that one of the things that I learned quite recently is about the different fight and flight responses that people have when responding to trauma. And it's really interesting. Everybody always thinks of fight and flight, right? And people one of the things you hear again and again when people talk about, um, talk to survivors of, of sexual assault or sexual abuse or rape, they always say, you know, why didn't you fight back? Like, why didn't you fight back? Uh, as if like, you know, we all have this inherent, like, you know, strong fighter inside of us, you know, that when responding to trauma, like we would all fight, you know, uh, like we beat somebody up or we know Kung Fu or something ridiculous like that. Why didn't you scream? But actually, people respond in different ways to trauma. Um, and it's however your body in that moment thinks is the best way to survive. So there's different ways. There's the fight response, obviously. There's the flight response, which is to run away. Um, there's the freeze response, which is where you just completely get frozen and your muscles all tense up and you just freeze. And that's actually a really common response. You'll see in countless situations where someone's experiencing trauma that they will just stop and freeze. And people talk about I just froze. I didn't know what to do. Um, there's the flop response where you kind of just flop and like all your muscles just go floppy and you just lie there or, or you just kind of like collapse, you know? Um, and then there's the friend response and that's a survival tactic. That's where you try and build a rapport with your attacker or build a rapport with the person who's committing the violence against you. And that kind of really resonated in my head when I read her account was that she's trying to go along. She's trying to be the friend. She's trying to go along and give him what he wants because that's her body responding to trauma. That's the best way to survive in that situation. That's the way to get out of that situation alive. And so, and, but you see, there's lots of people that would say, well, she performed oral sex. She wouldn't have done it if she didn't want to do it. Why didn't she fight back? Why'd she refuse, not refuse to do it? Uh, just because you're doing something doesn't necessarily mean you're consenting to it. It also doesn't necessarily mean that um, you're enjoying it either. And there was a, there's a lot of, stuff as well about, um, particularly when it comes to men and sexual assault, about how men can actually orgasm 
but doesn't necessarily mean they're enjoying it. Like doesn't necessarily mean that they actually are consenting. Um, you know, so it, it, just because you have a physiological response to something as well, doesn't also mean this is something that you wanted or something that you're happy about, or that isn't something that's traumatic. Uh, and is, this is the kind of thing that comes up in court cases. Like, why did she do this? Why didn't she say no? Um, why, you know, why did he go along with this? Why did he go home with this guy or girl or whatever? Um, and it's, people respond very differently in terrifying, fearful situations, you know, in trauma. Um, and it, this way that we have of dictating how victims, um, should respond to violence is really bad actually. And it's because, partly because no offense to Star Trek, but it's partly because in stuff like Star Trek, we've seen sexual assault portrayed in a very specific stereotypical way of someone being attacked, someone saying no. Um, and, you know, a woman screaming in a dark alley, you know, and actually that's not really, that doesn't really cover the, you know, myriad of situations in which people often can find themselves in. And actually when it is portrayed uh, in a slightly different way, I mean, I'm thinking of, say, in Deep Space Nine, the episode Profit and Lace, actually it does have a situation not uh, dissimilar from the kind of Weinstein situation and not in some ways dissimilar from the situation that Grace Lee Whitney found herself in. The kind of, um, I mean, we could talk for hours about how awful that episode is. It's probably my le- <laughs> one of my least, definitely so many my least favourite episode with that of Deep episode. Space Nine. But I mean, quite apart from all the kind of gender stuff and the whole, you know, uh, that whole bulk of the storyline, the wraparound for that story is these two scenes, one at the very beginning and one at the very end with, with Quark and one of his Darbo girls, where he basically is exactly trying to sort of bargain with her for sex he he's um he he gives this talk very and it, it did remind me you know reading them reading uh grace lee whitney's story and then watching that episode kind of back to back it's a kind of uncomfortable parallel because it starts he starts off being really nice just like this is executive starts off saying you know how much he loves janice rand and what a great character is and what a great job you're doing you know you're bringing all this stuff to the character and how fantastic it is and quark starts off saying you know how great this darbo girl is how popular she is with the customers you know what a good job she's doing being really nice to her and then and, and this is kind of a theme i think with a lot of these storylines in star trek is it's the kind of it's the nice guy who tries this stuff on it's not actually the kind of what you might think of as the kind of sexually aggressive guy it's the guy who seems like a kind of nice guy and then something turns nasty and then he basically he has this line he says something like you know you're being nice to everyone but you're not very nice to me and what he means is that she's not offering him sexual favors and then what he tries to do is give her this book which is a an umox manual which is basically you know asking her to masturbate him effectively with his ears <laughs> you know it's the closest we can kind of uh understand it um and 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 so and she seems very unhappy. She sort of takes the book and goes away, obviously feeling extremely uncomfortable with this situation. But then at the end of the episode, it comes back to it. And by then, very improbably, she has sort of is claiming that she actually wants to do this. And when Quark is saying, oh, don't, you know, I shouldn't have done that because Quark's had this kind of moment of, um, you know, having been a woman in this episode, he, he he now understands what it's like and so on. He's, I have a problem with that too, though. Like, he had to become a woman to figure this out. Well, that that's a whole other question, isn't it? That's the kind of like, oh, now I have a daughter, I understand about sexual assault <laughs> yeah. uh, in a way that I didn't when I didn't have a daughter. It's that kind of thing. But, um, but then the episode, I mean... Uh, turns it all into a big joke because it's like Quark saying, no, 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 that was totally wrong. I should never have done that. And she totally implausibly is saying, oh, but actually I quite fancy uh, doing umox on you. And I was really looking forward to it, which is just like totally 
implausible. Uh, and then the joke is kind of, he has this sort of comedy change of mind and says, no, wait, wait, wait. And then runs after her and they go off to do their, you know, slightly disgusting, kinky thing. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's this weird thing where, when a situation like that is portrayed on screen, it's played for laughs. It's not, it's not taken seriously at all. It's actually a pretty unpleasant situation. It's, it's just a bit of comic relief, kind of a, a wrapped around, uh, the subject of the episode. It's kind of, um, and I suppose it does tie into this sort of thing, you know, that you were saying of, of, of people saying, Oh, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? But there's this kind of blame and, and shame attached to it. There's a refusal to kind of take a, situ- a situation like that seriously enough. And certainly with Grace Lee Whitney, uh, she feels a huge amount of shame for what happened. She blames herself. She says, oh, I had too much to drink that night. I, you know, I, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. In a situation where she was totally not the one with power. She was not the one in control. She endured something really horrific. I mean, she describes going to see uh, Leonard Nimoy afterwards. And she said she told him it felt worse than rape was how she described it because it went on for hours. And it was kind of, it wasn't just a sort of quick thing that was over with in a sense. It was basically this kind of back and forth sort of negotiation and her trying to, this guy was getting angrier and angrier with her. And it was just a very uncomfortable, horrible situation that she kind of couldn't get out of um, and very scary for her. And then the next thing that happened is that um she lost her job basically, because he he had her fired, uh, even though she was a very popular character. And and this all happened before, I think, Star Trek had even gone on the air. You know, they'd shot her most of her episodes. And by the time I think the first episode went out, she'd already had this awful experience and been fired from the show. And that's why, obviously, she disappears, you know, whatever, a quarter of a way through the first season or whatever it is, maybe a little bit longer than that. I don't know. It's just it's just a horrible story from beginning to end. But it is a kind of reminder, sort of salutary reminder, I suppose, that this is something that was going on in the entertainment industry and in many other industries as well, but particularly so in the entertainment industry. You know, this is 50 odd years ago, and this is kind of at the heart of the development of Star Trek, really, this, this really unpleasant story that was happening backstage. Yeah, and like, obviously, you interviewed Marina Sirtis at um, Star Trek Destination, and she also mentioned that you know, she'd been sexually assaulted also in the industry. She said it was something that happened on a regular basis to different people and by different people. Um, and she said, I think there was one moment where she said it said, you know, it used to be seen as something that was just part of the job, you know, and it isn't now part of the job anymore, which is good, or at least it isn't for some people, hopefully it's completely changing. Um, but yeah, that sort of, and we don't like to think that that kind of went on behind the scenes in Star Trek, do we? Because Star Trek is this utopian view of the future and it's our beloved show that we love and the characters that we love. Uh, but once I started watching episodes with the Me Too movement in my mind, I started realizing that the show really doesn't address sexual assault in perhaps the wisest way. It does try in some examples, uh, but actually when it comes to the um, accusing somebody um, process of, uh, of of law, uh, you know, the following through of the process of somebody actually being um, taken, you know, taken to court or being actually prosecuted for a crime, the treatment of the victim, and then like the end result, um, it doesn't actually really address any of that. Uh, I found that the, the most, the, the best example would have was Enterprise, but like you said, there is no um resolution to that story the person who does commit that assault against a pole isn't actually brought to justice and there was two questions in my mind right 
which I didn't find answered in any of the episodes that I watched. And after all the research I did for this uh, this episode, uh, this podcast episode, I, I couldn't answer any of those questions, which is one, how is rape viewed in the Federation? And two, how does Starfleet prosecute someone accused of rape? And I couldn't answer any of those questions. Because it, usually it's either an alien doing it or in the case of i mean in the original series i suppose the the most obvious example particularly when we're talking about grace lee whitney is uh the enemy within uh and that's a, a you know an attempted assault that doesn't i suppose get all that far though it's a very scary see you know it's a very kind of um intense and, and scary uh scene and a very scary experience for janice rand and definitely that's an example of there's this sort of sense that she's supposed to kind of forget what's happened. It was this other part of Kirk, you know, there were kind of uh, extenuating circumstances that this, this transported duplicate, it wasn't really, they keep calling it the imposter, the imposter version of Kirk, even though it's no more the imposter as we are, you know, as the episode presents it than the other version of Kirk, who's the nice one. It's kind of, you know, there's this whole sort of troubling question of, you, you know, this being a part of Kirk, this being a part of, you know, who he is. And the fact that, you know, Rand is kind of in love with Kirk anyway, which actually is kind of interesting when you think about these stories of sexual assault. And you were saying, you know, actually sexual assault often happens from someone who you're close to, uh, you, you know, it, it, it does often happen from someone where there is a kind of a spark of something or an interest or whatever. It doesn't come typically from a complete stranger. And that's one of the things that's kind of uncomfortable about that episode, but also it's a terrible episode in terms of like, how do they deal with these allegations afterwards? I mean, and the worst of all really is Spock. I mean, Spock, ironically, you know, when Grace Lee Whitney is, is suffering, uh, sexual assault, it's Leonard Nimoy that she goes to because she knows, you know, she trusts him. He's a good friend. He's a really decent guy, etc. Spock in that episode is, is awful. You know, he's kind of making, uh, totally inappropriate jokes. He, he has this line where he says to her, you know, the imposter had some interesting qualities, didn't he? You know, basically saying, I bet you fancied him really, you know, when he was trying to rape you. Um, really, really uncomfortable. And the whole way that her sort of, um, that they sort of process this experience that she's had is very uh, uncomfortable and, and sort of um, thoughtless, I suppose, would be, would be one way of putting it. But it's interesting. I mean, even, re you know, reading through her book as well, I think it raises other questions, even with the production of that episode. I mean, fortunately, they they shot that episode before this whole experience happened for her in real life. But she tells one story, which I found quite shocking, um, about, uh, which I just guess just sort of goes slightly towards this question of, you know, what is normal in the entertainment industry and what isn't normal elsewhere and so on. That in one of the scenes where there's a scene where she's describing what's happened on the bridge and she said they'd already shot the sort of attempted rape scene. And this was a few days later and they were shooting the scene where she's talking about it on the bridge. And um, she felt she wasn't really getting uh, connected to what she'd been acting before somehow, that she wasn't kind of emotionally linked to it. And she said, William Shatner just came up and slapped her around the face totally, you know, unexpectedly. Um, and she was sort of representing this in the book as him doing her a favour, basically like helping her to act by kind of getting in touch with these, you know, by feeling assaulted, basically. I mean, that's the kind of behaviour that we do hear about sometimes in the entertainment industry. And I would say, you know, there are lines in the entertainment industry where there are, you know, actors will do things uh, that there are kind of levels of sort of intimacy and trust and so on, where you might do something you probably wouldn't do to someone else, you know, a colleague in a different situation. But at the same time, something like that, it does seem, I sort of feel that wouldn't really fly these days. Do you know what I mean? Just going and slapping, e even on a film set, going and slapping a coworker because you thought you were doing them a favour, they would hopefully be more likely to kind of 
so they felt uncomfortable about that. It's, it's almost, it reminds me a little bit of the, you know, story about Marlon Brando and the actress who, um, on, is it Last Tango in Paris, who, who said, because, and that was an instance. And one of the things that come out of the Me Too movement is this idea that with sex scenes and things like that, that there has to be much more, um, it, it is sort of about informed consent in a way. Cause, okay, that was a, that was a scene. It wasn't, it wasn't a real, sexual encounter if you see what I mean they were acting but at the same time the director and the actor in that situation sort of colluded behind the actress's back to sort of surprise her and she ended up saying that she in her words she said I felt a little bit raped in that situation because she was performing this this scene and also being uh, I'm not going to go into the details because this is supposed to be a family friendly podcast but you, you, you know um it was a very inappropriate I think we might say an uncomfortable scenario and and Shatner slapping Gracely Whitney obviously is not quite in the same league as that, but it is, it feels like it's kind of crossing a line. And maybe that's because of the gender imbalance and the kind of power imbalance. I don't know what would have happened if she'd gone and slapped him in the middle of a scene, he being the star of the show and she being, you know, several um, notches down the kind of um, cast list. But it's kind of, it just, I suppose it just sort of reminds us of how something about that, that sense of this is an industry where, where expectations are very, clearly defined and people have a lot of power uh, to make or break people's careers. And and you're right, we'll come on and play that uh, brief interview with Marina Sirtis shortly, because she absolutely talks about that kind of sense that, yes, there were certain things that you just had to put up with that was seen as part of the job. You know, if you wanted to work in the entertainment industry, you had to uh, negotiate kind of sexual harassment at the very least and kind of know how to deal with it. That's kind of part of your job as an actress. And so I, I just, I, I was sort of slightly feels to me like there's a kind of a sort of a link there between this kind of sense of, you know, inappropriate behavior, not to say that William Shatner slapping her in that scene is, is in any way equivalent to these other kind of crimes, but there's, there's a, but it, it was an act of non-consensual physical touch. It was a non-consensual interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And I think these days it would be, cons- it would definitely be frowned on at the very least. I think that, I think that actually happens a lot more in film sets than we think it does. I've heard of a few cases. Um, well, I've read of a few cases in, um, other films, mainstream films, where somebody has not been getting like the performance that they want from an actor. And so they've gone and took another actor aside and said, like, I need you to be really mean, or I need you to slap somebody, or I need you to, um, I think hopefully this is changing. I mean, we all, we can just, we can, but hope. Um, but I don't work on film sets regularly, so I'm not sure I would be able to say, but one of the things that I would question, I would ask is, you know, is the constant treatment of Janice Rand and also I would say of Troy in Star Trek, is it, you know, I mean, is it appropriate? Like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't address the subject of sexual assault or um, rape in a TV show. I think it's important to address it. But there's a lot of forcible sexual activity shown in Star Trek, you know, and I would include stuff like mind violations as a sexual assault, right? Especially in the case of Troy, because the memory that she has in the episode violations, the Next Generation episode, um, is actually a sexual memory. Um, And so what I would say is, like, why is it that Star Trek is so prudish about showing consensual sex between adults i'm not saying i want sex scenes you know in discovery from going forward or picard or whatever but star trek is notoriously like it's like a family show right so there's not that much swearing there's not much overt sexuality like sexual um consensual sex i mean there's plenty of like dabbo girls and you know women in the original series wearing like little outfits where they basically everything is showing but their belly button but there's not that much showing of consensual sex or that much 
physical touching of loving relationships, at least until DS9 when you have Cisco and, and, um, Cassidy or Keiko and Miles, or I guess you could argue Odo and Kira or Worf and Dazia. Keiko and Miles, we get this really kind of uncomfortable innuendo, basically. That's their sex life as far as we can see. It's, it's kind of cringy. And it's that sort of, and it is very, because it's like a married couple and so on, it's in a certain, uh, sort of sitcom-y context somehow. I, I, I think maybe with Worf and Jadzia, there's a bit more, there's this kind of kinky side to their sex life. Deep Space Nine is willing to slightly go there, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's implied that they are, but like, I'm not saying we need a sex scene between Cake, uh, uh, uh not Cake, Cake Owen, God. Cake um, and Wolf? No. Oh, no, no, we definitely don't need that. But I'm not saying we need a sex scene between Jazzy and Wolf. I'm not saying we need that. But what I'm saying is that Star Trek is kind of a little bit like, ooh, like prudish about it, right? Whereas they're not like that about, about sexual violence, you know? Like, I feel like the scene between Janice Rand and James Kirk, the evil imposter James Kirk, the rapist side of him, which apparently all men apparently have a good side and a rapist side in them. And apparently the rapist side is actually needed in order for James Kirk to be a strong leader. I think that's what they kind of implied in the episode. I was like, what the hell? But that that scene is quite explicit. It's very violent. And what struck me is that these two female characters are shown being violated again and again and again. I mean, Janice Rand is slapped on the butt by Charlie X. You know, she's seen as someone who is like basically a walking victim, you know, a walking sexual assault victim, right? And what I would argue is, well, not argue, but what I would question is, is perpetrating this atmosphere on screen, constantly writing this into storylines, does that seep out into the real world? Do you see what I'm saying? If you're showing these women being victims of assault, but you're not showing any resolution, you're not showing any sort of perpetrator being brought to justice, you're not showing them like achieving any agency of their own, you know, then are you just perpetrating this kind of culture behind the scenes of actually Janice Rand is a sex symbol, you know? So then Grace Lee Whitney is a sex symbol and she's violated on screen. So, you know, she's free to be violated in real life. I mean, I'm not saying that the writers of Star Trek are to blame for what happened to her, but it's, it's this culture, you know, like she's the pretty girl on screen that can be assaulted by the captain or, but also lusted after by the captain. And, and the fact that, you know, he desires her doesn't mean that he's going to sexually assault her and he could sexually desire her but he could he could desire consensual sex he doesn't have to desire like unconsensual and unconsensual sex is often very much about power not actually about sexual desire so i mean i know they're kind of complicatedly linked but so i just was thinking how much of this was bleeding off the screen into like the actual production and real life and how much of that you know exists also in Next Generation. I mean, I know Marina Sirtis has said that it's, you know, important to show this stuff on screen and that Star Trek addressed that. But I don't think they addressed the idea of sexual assault, but they didn't resolve that in any way. Um, and then you're just showing it for showing it for excitement's sake, for drama. It's just like a dramatic tool. Let's let Troy be violated again. And I don't know, it doesn't, it just, that seems kind of irresponsible to me, actually. I think there's definitely an argument um, there that that in TV, particularly, it, sexual assault is a kind of uh, shortcut to drama somehow because it is it raises the stakes, it creates a lot of intensity. I mean, you, you, you know, as you say that that scene with Janice Rand and the 
you know, quote marks, imposter Kirk is very dramatic. It's very, you know, it's well acted. It's very uh, effective part of the episode. And I think there is a tendency to go for these storylines because they are quite emotive and quite um, powerful. And that's, and that's not to say that you shouldn't have these storylines, but I would sometimes question the thinking behind them. I mean, I, I only have limited kind of interaction with the world of TV, but I was quite shocked. One of my books, uh, the, the one that sort of went the furthest down the route of uh, ultimately not being made into a TV show, but did at least get to the point where they're writing scripts and so on. Um, there was one scene in particular that I was always very uncomfortable. But as a, as a writer, you don't have much uh, say about you. You know, you can express an opinion and then it'll get ignored essentially. And this was a character. This is a character that they based on a real woman that I'd written about uh, that my partner Nula and I'd written about in one of our books. Um, and a part of her character was that she was kind of a tomboy. She didn't have all that much time for men. I mean, she ended up getting married and that was sort of where the story went, but she was quite, she was not a typically sort of feminine woman, if you know what I mean. She was, uh, this was in the war. She was working as a mechanic and so on. Um, and the screenwriter put in this element into this storyline. And, and, you know, it, it wasn't exactly this woman's story that she was writing, but it was very heavily influenced by this woman's real life story. And they included a scene early on of her being raped by a soldier. Um, and the only thing I could think was they, they put this in to sort of explain, this is why she's a tomboy. This is why she's like funny with men is because she's been raped. And that's, you know, that she can't just be like, she can't just be a tomboy because that's sort of her personality. And that's what she was like as a kid. And that's how she grew up and so on. And also just for this sense of like, it's like, well, we're, you know, we're getting up to the kind of act two break. We need something dramatic to happen in this episode and if we put a rape scene in then that kind of raises the stakes and it keeps viewers and they won't you know switch off when the adverts come around and it just it it felt so to me and this is partly you know maybe for me knowing the real woman and knowing the real story and knowing that she wasn't i mean you know certainly didn't tell us she'd ever been sexually assaulted um you know that that was a complete fabrication on the part of the screenwriter it just felt so um it felt very shoehorned in into a story that didn't need it to make sense, didn't really require, it wasn't actually about that. It wasn't in any way integral to the story, really. It was kind of put in for these quite, um, it just sort of felt kind of cheap. Do you know what I mean? It felt like a kind of cheap trick. It's like, grab that out of the bag, we'll throw a sexual assault scene in. And, you know, we have had these discussions with shows like Game of Thrones and so on about the use of sexual assault and rape and so on on screen, that it, it, there's something kind of lazy about it. It can be quite kind of gratuitous. It can be quite um, lazily done. But why don't we play that um, interview with Marina Sirtis? Because it's interesting. I mean, I sort of went into it assuming I knew she, the reason I, I talked to her about this, this was uh, a while ago at the Destination Star Trek convention, um, was I knew that when the Me Too movement was going on, she was tweeting a lot in support of people. You know, she, she seemed to be sort of involved in it online, if you know what I mean. I thought she's obviously has something to say about this subject. And it's striking for anyone watching Next Gen that Troy is the character who does seem to kind of go through these storylines again and again. And I was sort of assuming that she would have a bit of a problem with that one way or another in the way that I know a lot of fans kind of feel like Troy is slightly used in these storylines in that way. Actually, what she said surprised me slightly. She she didn't really look back on it that way at all. But I think it's an interesting chat. So let's um, play that interview with Marina Sirtis now and then we can uh, have a little bit of a chat about what kind of issues come out of it. 
So I'm here with Marina Sirtis here in Birmingham. Um, Marina, I know that you've been tweeting quite a lot recently about the Me Too movement and uh, the kind of changing cultural landscape that we're living through. And I'm just curious because Deanna Troy is someone who went through quite a lot of quite tough storylines in that regard. Is that something that you think is, is kind of changing in the entertainment world in terms of how those things are being represented? I mean, if Next Gen was being made today, would that be handled differently, do you think? I don't know that it would be handled differently because I, don't, I think those situations happen. And so I think to ignore that those situations happen would, would be doing doing every, everybody a disservice. Just because me, you know, of hashtag me too, um, it doesn't mean that uh, we've solved anything. It just means that now um, we, ha we, we talk about it. Um, you know, it changed Hollywood overnight. I mean, literally, I'm pretty sure there's not a director or producer in Hollywood now who would dare to do anything to a young actress they wouldn't dare whereas yeah whereas when I was a young actress um, I mean I've been assaulted um, I've been uh, treated inappropriately I've been um, spoken to inappropriately I've been touched inappropriately um, but when I became an actress that was part of the job that really was if you couldn't deal with that go choose another career you just accepted that that was the way you were going to be treated if you were a female um I mean, I haven't, I haven't spoken about specifically specific people because I'm so old, they're all dead now. So it doesn't hardly, <laughs> you can say what you like then. You can't lie hardly them. seems worth it. I mean, Michael Winner, one of the worst, absolutely the worst. I just awful, awful human being. Um, but I, I, no, I hope we aren't. I hope we aren't ignoring the stories because you know we're living in well you know we're living in cultures now that are changing but in certain other cultures things aren't changing look what just happened in Huddersfield you know um, just because there's a movement out there doesn't mean that men's attitudes to women are changing so um, the only thing that the only thing that's different is that now possibly um, girls will have the courage to speak out um, women will have the courage to speak out uh, I think we're a long way from that being perfect uh, I mean I heard one of the girls from Huddersfield the only time she felt safe to talk about it was once she'd been locked up in prison and they couldn't get to her so um, yeah I think we always have to handle those issues because those issues still are very prevalent these days but there, there, there is an opportunity if the, if the women have, to have um, can find it in themselves the courage because it is courage. It does take a lot of courage to speak out because part of it is that you're so ashamed. The shame that you feel. And you don't want people, and you don't, and you just don't want people to know your shame, you know? So it's baby steps, you know? But I think as far as Star Trek goes, I think it was good that we handled those issues and, um, and, and hopefully, you know, we resolve them usually in an episode. So, uh, yeah, I think it was on the right track. It must be hard playing something, though, if it's... Do you know what I mean? If you've had an experience in your own life, and the fact is what we've discovered through Me Too, is that these kind of experiences are so much more common, maybe, than Me Too Oh, they were, they, were, they were more common than they were uncommon. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. So does that make it harder? I'm just thinking, I'm not saying that necessarily you wouldn't run those storylines, but that maybe there must be an awareness, hopefully, with actresses now... Or actors as well. Do you know what I mean? Of sort of thinking, what am I asking someone to 
to go through and performing something. Right. Well, well, except that you know, you know, are you going to stop showing? Well, yeah, you can just stop showing murder mysteries. You know, it's kind of the same thing. Um, You can't stop talking about things just because they're not nice. Yeah. So, as an actress, actually, the fact that I had been through stuff like that actually helped me as an actress because what I was, what I was calling on, was real. I didn't have to make it up. I had been there. I knew what that felt like as opposed to trying to imagine what it felt like. So, um, you know, sadly, I had my own experiences to draw from, and I kind of wish I hadn't, obviously, but I did. So I think it's interesting listening to Marina talking there about her own experiences about those Next Gen episodes. I mean, we'll come on and talk in a bit of detail about some of the ways that Next Gen in particular handle these kind of storylines. And, you know, we may or may not agree with her perspective on on those storylines. But it's interesting, I suppose, to bear in mind, I guess what I was kind of getting at there was that for her as an actress acting out a scene... I mean, she said, oh, you, you know, what are you going to not, you're going to not do storylines about murder or whatever? Well, most people, most actresses probably haven't been the victim. Well, they certainly haven't been the victim of murder, obviously. They haven't been the victim of, uh, attempted murder even, or of, you know, some of the kind of big dramatic things that happen in drama are kind of outside of the ordinary experience. And it would be unusual to have an actor who'd experienced those things. What we learned in part from the Me Too movement, is that sexual assault is not at all unusual, and especially, as Marina was saying, in that industry. And so that's why I was sort of wondering, you know, is that something that maybe producers and and writers and so on need to be a bit more sensitive, and directors particularly need to be more kind of sensitive to these days, that, you know, these kind of things might be kind of triggering one way or another, I suppose, is a way of looking at it. Whereas she said she saw it very much as, well, this is my life, this is my experience, I can bring it to bear on my work, and that is actually... Uh, almost a sort of, almost a positive thing in some ways that I, you know, that I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm acting, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that she has that, like, experience or that feeling about her experiences. I don't think all actresses in Star Trek felt the same way, though. I mean, Nana Visitor, when we spoke to her at the Star Trek um, Destination Convention, she didn't imply that was the case for her. I mean, she didn't mention sexual assault or sexual abuse. She mentioned uh, trying to deal with the emotions that were brought up in basically living or, or acting, but basically almost living, really, Kieran Norris's life for all those years that she betrayed her. And also the revulsion that she felt towards the actor who played Gold Cat. And, you know, you've got to question how much of that is actually acting on screen when Gold Cat, you know, goes up and like you know tries to stroke Kira's cheek with this creepy little smile it makes my skin skin crawl that scene um actually anything with Golda Cat and Kira makes my skin crawl to be honest um but you know like how he's like basically constantly sexually harassing her and you know that a visitor I mean we saw in the documentary um what we left behind about DS9 that she wasn't keen on those scenes and she wasn't I mean I think she probably felt they were important to portray but that she actually felt real revulsion uh, and, you know, it's quite possible because she has experienced sexual harassment. I don't know. But um, we know that she has actually been sexually assaulted because she wrote about it. Um, and that the way that she dealt with that is to, you know, use mindfulness and meditation, which is quite a different approach than what Marina Sirtis is talking about is like, you know, acting it because I know how it felt. It felt, you know, maybe it was cathartic to act it. I agree with her that sexual assault should be shown on TV. I totally agree with her there. I think she's right. It should be talked about. It should be shown on TV. We shouldn't shy away from stories involving sexual assault. I just don't 
agree with her claim that Star Trek does it well. I just don't think Star Trek does do it well. I don't think that's because people were intentionally setting out to portray sexual assault like badly. I, I don't think that's, I don't think the people were intentionally trying to do any harm, but I think I agree with you what you said earlier about how it's used as a dramatic device. You know, it's, 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 a, it, it's used as a dramatic storytelling tool without thinking through the consequences of doing that. So it's not, act, I feel like the writers aren't doing actual proper research into what these crimes involve. And a lot of the time in Star Trek, it's shown as something that's kind of morally wrong, you know, but it's not just morally wrong. It's a crime, <laughs> you know, and it would be nice to see it like sexual assault or rape treated as a crime uh, um, in Star Trek as an actual crime that someone's going to be prosecuted for. Uh, and mutiny, you know, is shown repeatedly, not often, but it is shown in the original series. It's talked about in Next Generation. It's shown in Discovery as a crime. It would be nice if the next time a character is sexually violated or assaulted or raped in Star Trek, that it's been sh shown as a crime that's taken seriously and that someone is prosecuted. And I think you have a responsibility to do that when you show sexual assault on TV. Otherwise, you're using it for a dramatic purpose. And if you're using it for a dramatic purpose, then it's shown as exciting. And you're breeding, I think, a culture of sexual violence off screen um, somewhere in the world, at least. So I agree with her that it should be shown. Um, but I disagree with her that Star Trek did it well. And I can understand also that she might not want to say that Star Trek didn't do it well. And I guess she might also not see it that way because she was the one portraying the character for all those years. Um, you know, she was the one saying the, saying the lines. She was the one working with the script writers and the people in the production company, um, production, you know, crew and everything. So I think everyone went, meant well. Well, I mean, I hope so. <laughs> Let's come on in a minute and, and look at some of these episodes individually and talk about whether, you know, what they maybe did or didn't do well. I think maybe I'm less, I find them quite uncomfortable to watch. I do think there are problems with them. I don't necessarily feel that this is a topic that Star Trek has sort of outright failed in the way that we might say with some other kind of social issues, they have slightly kind of failed. Uh, I sort of think it's a bit more complicated than that. And I can certainly understand why from Marina Sirtis' point of view, she may feel, well, look, this is a part of my own life experience. This is an important thing to talk about. This is an important thing to put on screen. She presumably feels proud of the work that she did. She thinks she did a good job. Uh, and I can understand all of that. I mean, I, I, I can, I can sort of understand where she's coming from. It surprised me because it wasn't really what I was expecting her to say. I don't know why I, I sort of expected her to say something because she's known for being quite outspoken. I expected her to say something quite outspoken. So sort I of say, Oh God, you have those scripts every other week. I seem to be, you know, having some assault storyline. And, and we do tend to exaggerate it. I mean, the, she is the character who gets it more than anyone else. These kind of storylines on next gen, but it's not like it's happening every other week. It's just that it's happening noticeably more frequently than it does to anyone else. And she's kind of the one in that role. It's not, it's not Beverly who has these storylines. It's always, it's always Troy one way or another. She's the most open, clear example of traditional femininity. I mean, we don't see Riker get violated that often, do we? Well, although, uh, interestingly, we do in the episode, and again, it's played for laughs, in the episode First Contact, we have an alien who 
has his life pretty much in her hands and says she'll let him go if he'll have sex with her. Yeah, that's and true. And it's, you know, totally a Weinstein situation, really. We don't see that really as sexual assault we, or, 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 you know, sexual harassment or, or whatever it is because it's Riker and because it's a woman. We kind of, we sort of play it differently. But it's a pretty uncomfortable situation, you know, that is not a million miles away from from, from some of those situations. But but you're right, typically it's it's not Riker who's the, the guy in that situation. It's, you know, it's, it's always Troy that it happens to one way or another. But then I guess the question is, you know, if she's the most traditional example of, well, the most, the, the biggest example, most over example of traditional femininity, and she's the one who has violated more than any character, what are we saying about traditional femininity then? Like, if you got to say, you got to question that, like, then what is Star Trek saying about, I mean, it's not just Star Trek, I think that's just media in general. Then we're getting back to the whole idea of a gendered, gendered crime. And the sense of kind of... It's not exactly slut shaming, is it? But do you, do you know what I mean? There is a sort of sense there are certain characters in Star Trek, and it's striking that obviously it's Seven of Nine in Voyager who gets this storyline. You know, it's the the women who are typically not dressed in the Starfleet uniform who are put in these different uniforms that accentuate their figure. That are very much, you know, and Troy is is very much that character in Next Gen. She's the one who's kind of there, uh, in the same way as Janice Rand was in the original series. You know, she's there sort of fulfilling that role slightly. She's the babe, as uh, you know, Rick Berman talked about casting. The the babes in the, the shows that each one had to have, you know, a babe character basically. Um, and so it's not surprising in the sense that she's the one that that, that those storylines happen to. Um, it just struck me when you were talking about the, the criminalising of it. And I suppose part of the issue with, I mean, I, she didn't go into detail about exactly what it was that Michael Winner did, though obviously it was something pretty unpleasant. Um, but some of these situations, there is a kind of, I suppose, a slightly blurred line as to, you know, when you said, is, is it actually, is it immoral or is it illegal? Yeah, we can say this is definitely immoral, but at what point does it cross the line into being illegal, some kind of harassment situation or whatever? But it's interesting that she drew the connection when she mentioned the situation in Huddersfield. Um, I had to go and look it up because this was a while ago that I spoke to her. This was uh, basically a paedophile ring in Huddersfield that had... Um, taken these girls, some of them as young as 11, I think, and was abusing them. Um, so she very explicitly drew the connection between, you know, people speaking out in the entertainment industry about abuses of power with like uh, rich and powerful producers um, holding power over young women and a situation of absolute... Um, not to say that that's a particularly grey area in itself, but the, but that the, 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 that she would link it immediately to a case of actual you know sexual abuse of minors by a gang of criminals essentially is sort of interesting when we talk about rape culture and these sort of ideas. It's kind of, I suppose, it's seeing it all as different sides of the same coin, um, and I think that's an interesting perspective on it. I suppose the thing that struck me about that interview was I um, I didn't go into it expecting her to sort of you know, go into her own personal experience particularly. But in a way, I shouldn't have been surprised that she did because that is part of what the whole kind of Me Too movement is about. And I suppose just as for many people in their own lives, you know, finding out that members of their own family have had these experiences of sexual assault, you know, talking to to friends, family, etc., and finding out that maybe these experiences are more common than uh, than often we realise, particularly as men, I think, than we realised. Um there's an element of finding out that these things have sort of happened within our Star Trek family that is quite shocking. So, uh, you know, so Marina Sirtis is one example. I mean, you mentioned Nanar Visitor. Um, both Nanar Visitor and Kate Mulgrew in recent years have written about uh, quite violent experiences of sexual assault and rape, basically. I mean, Kate Mulgrew in her memoir, there's a really shocking section where she talks about being raped by a stranger um 
who had you know kind of invaded her home basically and again that sense the way she talks about of just trying to survive it just trying to sort of shut down and get through it and you you, you know that the, as far as she was concerned the main issue was she could be dead um and trying to avoid that outcome um then our visitor, you know, in the midst of filming Deep Space Nine had a, a, you know, similar experience in Los Angeles, I think, where she was um, assaulted by, I think, more than one man. I, I, can't, I can't remember what the, the, the details were, but it was two men, I think, you know, so again, a sort of violent um, assault. And obviously, you know, we're thinking, okay, we're watching Deep Space Nine. This is what this woman has literally just gone through. I mean, I don't know when it happened, but, you know, in the gap between two of those episodes and then probably gone into work a couple of days later and picked up with that character and that character of Kira, who herself is a, as you say, constantly being sexually harassed one way or another. And I suppose there's an interesting question there because we see to some extent, both Jadzia and Kira get sexually harassed, but with Jadzia, it's always, it's very much that kind of what Marina Sirtis was kind of saying, you know how to handle it. You know, she'll sort of bat it off and she'll kind of, and she sort of flirts back with Quark a bit. And there's a bit of a kind of playfulness about it. And she doesn't seem that bothered by it ever. Kira is much more, we get those scenes where, you know, Quark puts his hand on her thigh and she says, you know, I'm going to break every bone in your hand or, or whatever it is. Um, Gul Dukat again is being quite sort of touchy feely and she, throws his arm off her. Do you remember there's that alien who like harasses her to the point where she has to pretend she has a partner in order to get rid of him. And then he, he wants to have a hologram made of her. Like that's, that's dodgy. And I think I watched that as a little girl and I didn't think anything of it, but watching it now, I'm like, wow, that's like having a hologram made of her is almost a little bit like upskirting or something. It's like taking a photo of her. I mean, I know he hasn't, but it would be the equivalent of taking a photo of somebody without their consent and then like using it for something pornographic. It's a very prescient episode, I think. It, what it reminds me of these days is, you know, all these hacked, uh, pri- like private images being hacked from celebrities' phones and so on. And this kind of, um, you know, exactly that sort of invasion of privacy, the idea that all this kind of like deep faking, you know, where you can kind of put one person's head on another person's body or whatever and make a kind of convincing uh, forgery in a sense. And it's absolutely, it's, it's a weirdly sort of um, prescient episode, that one, I think, because all these technologies didn't exist in the 90s and the things that have subsequently come to you know, be a sort of part of the landscape and a part of, again, I suppose, you know, some people, you know, I don't know, we could ask Marina Sirtis about it, but, you know, some people would say that's, that's one of the dangers, particularly for women in the entertainment industry now, even more is these, but there's always been paparazzi. I mean, you talk about upskirting, look at, you know, uh, Princess Diana, you, you know, celebrities, there's always been photographers with, um, telephoto lenses trying to catch them, you know, sunbathing on holiday or, or whatever, you know, trying to get these naked pictures of people, all this kind of thing. So in a way, it does sort of tap into, I mean, that episode I think is interesting. It sort of taps into some of the other stuff that might be more loosely covered by Me Too that's not exactly sexual assault, but is kind of harassing or inappropriate behavior, sexual behavior, one way or another. Um, but it just sort of struck me as interesting in some ways, you know, talking to Marina Sirtis, reading these quite shocking accounts by Nanar Visitor, Kate Mulgrew. I mean, particularly those two, more so than Troy in a way, they are probably what we think of as like the the strong female character on those two shows, you know, these very kind of iconic, um, uh, powerful women. And in a way, it does come as a surprise in some ways to learn these awful stories that have happened to those actresses in their in their real lives. I don't know that it should surprise us. We we shouldn't really be surprised by this in a sense, because what the Me Too movement should be teaching us is these things are very common one way or another. And, you know, a lot of people have these kind of stories and these experiences to share. But I guess there's maybe this sense that, you know, as I say, 
as Star Trek fans, we're very familiar with these people one way or another, or we think we are, you know, from seeing them on screen and so on. And finding out these stories, it is a bit like, you know, finding out these stories happening, you know, a story that your cousin tells you or that your best friend tells you or something. And you're kind of really shocked because you didn't know that. Do you know what I mean? And it's that sense of it gives, it does give us an insight into how widespread a lot of these, uh, experiences are. So another example of that is Anthony Rapp, who obviously um, came out um, uh, uh, with the Me Too movement um, to talk about how he had been um, like sexually harassed um, when he was young. Uh, And that was another example, I suppose, of uh, like a Star Trek actor talking about something that you're like, wow, really? I didn't know that happened. Or, um, you know, I, I think that was a bit of a shock for me, partly because I didn't know the sounds awful. I didn't know Anthony Rapp's name. <laughs> I mean, I just didn't know all the actors of Discovery at that point. Um, I'm not very good at remembering actors' names, I'll admit. Um, and I had obviously I didn't grow up watching Discovery um, because I'm too old for that, sadly. So I've been watching it as a, as an adult. Um, and then when Ben, um, my husband, mentioned this news news story, and he said, "Oh yeah, you know the Star Trek actor." I'm like, "What? Which Star Trek actor?" Um, and then obviously read the news item, and I was like, "Oh wow!" But it was interesting because I was surprised um, and sort of shocked. But actually, I don't think many people in the entertainment industry were because there had been rumors flying around about Kevin Spacey apparently for years, um, or, or not even just rumors. People had been saying stuff and. Uh, and, you know, even to the point where my husband had actually works, uh, or well, was working in the arts sector, had actually heard things from other people, um, because obviously Kevin Spacey was in the UK for a long time, um, at the Old Vic. So, you know, there was lots of stuff that was known about, even just in the theatre world in London, um, about him. And, um, I didn't know any of this, obviously, because, I mean, I'm not in that circle, that world, and um, I hadn't really read about it. And I, I don't, I'm not in the habit of Googling people's um, private lives, you know. Well, Kevin Spacey, I think, had been very successful in keeping his private life private. And actually, the way he spun that whole storyline was about being outed. Basically, he was sort of, you know, complaining at Anthony Rapp for outing him as a gay man, because obviously, the media, for whatever reason, never reported on Spacey being a gay man. I mean, that's something that wasn't, you know, everyone knew that in the entertainment industry. I mean, I knew because I was working as an actor at the time that he was at the Old Vic. So, you know, the the two things you knew about Kevin Spacey that you might not know from kind of Hollywood output were one, that he was gay and two, you know, pretty much immediately afterwards that he had a bit of a reputation for being quite kind of, uh, kind of lecherous, um, around young men, uh, and someone to sort of be wary of, if you know what I mean. Uh, but those are not things that were widely known, but absolutely any, any, everyone in the entertainment industry knew that. And, and I was quite surprised at the time the old Vic was sort of saying, Oh gosh, we had no idea about this. You know, we're really shocked because he was their artistic director for like a decade or something. That is a complete lie. It's not possible that anyone worked at the old Vic and didn't know that this was going on. And the fact is one of the things that struck me about it was I actually rehearsed a play at the old Vic, um, once I didn't meet Kevin Spacey, uh, I met Jeff Goldblum, who seemed, well, I don't know, yeah, some slightly dubious things, maybe being circling around Jeff Goldblum. But he seemed like a nice guy and I certainly hadn't heard anything about him at that time. But a friend of mine who was in the show had a run in with Kevin Spacey on the stairs and just had a little chat with him. Um, and this is kind of gives you an indication of how screwed up uh, some of our 
people's mindsets are. And this was a, a straight guy as well, my friend. Um, and he, he came in uh, to the rehearsal room afterwards and he said to me, oh, I just had a chat with Kevin Spacey. And, uh, and you know, he, did, he didn't try anything on with me. He, didn't, he didn't, didn't seem to be interested in me. And my friend was kind of like almost insulted <laughs> by this because he, Kevin Spacey was so notorious as this kind of lech who would just grab hold of any young man who came within his orbit that he was like, what was wrong with me? Why didn't, you know, why didn't Kevin Spacey try and sexually harass me? I mean, which gives you a, an indication of like, what the hell? Do you know what I mean? Like what is going on with our culture? I mean, that is a weird culture that kind of not only normalizes that behavior, but actually he, he takes it, you know, sort of jokingly, but sort of took it as like, oh, wow, there's something wrong with me that he doesn't want to, um, assault me against my will because that was, and that was absolutely, so I was not at all surprised. I mean, I was surprised it was Anthony Rapp telling the story and so on, but I wasn't, you know, there were lots of people online saying, what, this is ridiculous. I don't believe a word of it. I was certainly not one of those people. I, I thought it seemed entirely uh, in keeping with everything that I'd ever heard about Kevin Spacey and his sort of general behaviour. Um, but, but it was an interesting contribution to the Me Too movement and the fact that it was a man coming forward. I think Anthony Rapp was a real big player uh, in that movement. And Ashley Judd as well, you know, one of the key women behind the movement, also, a you know, briefly a Star Trek guest star. So Star Trek had its kind of um, representation within that movement right from the beginning, I suppose, in that way. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that, like, at the time, obviously, when, um, you know, Kevin Spacey responded to the um, allegations was that he sort of basically released a statement saying, I'm gay, which I think is a very you know neither here nor there like you know like you know um the idea that the only men who are sexually assaulted are gay men or the fact that you're gay gives you the reason to you know or the excuse to do this which is obviously completely and utterly wrong and untrue um and you know all people of all different um you know sexual identities and sexual preferences and gender identities are from all across you know the spectrum um you know, are, are victims of sexual assault. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight, whatever, you know. Um, but one of the things I thought was interesting at the same time as that was happening in Discovery, we're seeing a straight man, um, Ash Tyler, a character, um, basically deal with the trauma and the PTSD resulting in uh, a sexual assault. I mean, I would say it was sexual assault. I would say it was rape. I mean, that's what, how I read it when I watched it on screen was that this wasn't a consensual thing. I know later on in the series, he talks about how Vok and Laurel were in love with each other. Um, but it's implied that Ash Tyler's memories are traumatic. You know, he's reliving something that happened to him sexually that he didn't consent to and that he did not want um, or enjoy. And I think that that was interesting i think that was that's quite a brave move for star trek to make as much as i've just criticized star trek for like the last hour um i have to say i did i did approve of that i think that was that was a brave thing to do and then also to later on to show him attacking uh, michael and to show a you know two people in an actual consensual relationship um one perpetrating violence against the other one that's also important the idea that um you know you can you can be married to someone or you can be in a, in a sexual relationship with someone, a consenting sexual relationship with somebody. But if you don't consent to something that they're doing to you, then it's an assault, you know? So it doesn't matter if they're your partner. Um, and one of the things I thought was interesting about Anthony Rapp coming out in the Me Too movement was the amount of abuse that he got on Twitter and the amount of abuse that, that, that sort of people nitpicking 
his account. You know, like, what were you doing at that party so young? Where were your parents? What we blah, blah, blah. Like, questioning his, you know, why, why were you doing this? Why were you doing that? Questioning his decisions and his choices and, and him, basically. And as like a 14 year old boy or whatever he was at the time. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But not questioning Kevin Spacey, who like, you know, like, dude, you don't, you don't come on to a 14 year old. Like, just don't do that. Like, and he didn't just come on to him. He like, hurled him like he pinned him down to a bed I think didn't he? I mean it was more do you know what I mean it was like it's not like he was just kind of flirting with him I don't think not that well, that still would have would been, been wrong okay, but you, <laughs> that could be know, harassment was, yeah exactly but, yeah, <laughs> yeah so yeah. um so at the same time that was happening you know like discovery was showing um actually proving the point that you know this whole ridiculous thing that Kevin Spacey was saying about, you know, being gay, that actually this isn't, because I think there is, I think there is this idea in people's minds in popular culture, the sexual assault between men happens between gay men, that it doesn't happen to straight men or it doesn't ha or, or that gay men, you know, um, somehow like they, you know, they meet somebody on Grindr, then they go and they, you know, have sex with them. Um, and it's all they're asking for. That's what they want, you know, when actually, no, no consent is, the same concept across all genders and all sexual identities. So um, it was it was interesting at the same time that, that Ash Tyler was being shown in Star Trek. I think Discovery is an interesting uh, case, particularly season, season one of Discovery, particularly because I think that thread of sexual assault and the kind of Me Too phenomenon and so on is absolutely one of the interesting things that is kind of layered through that season in various ways. I mean, I think in some ways, it falls down a little bit when we were talking about mental health, you know, way back, we kind of said part of the problem with discovery is that it, um, the kind of plot shenanigans get in the way of these kind of quite real intense, uh, social issues, emotional storylines, etc. And I think something of the same thing is it happens again here because, you know, with mental health with Ash Tyler, you had okay, this guy who seems to be suffering post-traumatic stress and it's a very, powerful depiction really well acted really well written depiction of that and yet at the same time it's actually uh crazy sci-fi klingon uh surgery um kind of gone wrong do you know what i mean there's a sort of sci-fi explanation for it all which slightly kind of undercuts that and i think in some ways it is unclear with the sexual assault stuff i mean i think it i think you're right i think it is depicted very effectively i mean there's that scene which is very moving where ash tells burnham what happened to him uh, and they're just like sitting around like in their pajamas or something in, in in one of their quarters talking about it really and he's sort of you know sharing his story really and saying and exactly kind of what we were talking about saying you know it's not that he was um physically overpowered exactly it's that he realized this was a way to survive in that situation and no one else none of the other prisoners survived that's the way he puts it so he became you know he was sort of coerced i suppose in in that sense um and he's absolutely suffering as a result obviously it's kind of complicated by this sense that laurel feels that it's a consensual relationship and it's interesting when you get to season two there's that episode where he says to her he says to her something like when you touch me it feels like a violation and she recoils from him at that point and is really shocked because she you know she's still in love with Vogue and she thinks that Ash kind of is Vogue or whatever um so Laurel when she hears that is quite um you know, he's horrified really. And basically and doesn't want, doesn't want to do anything that's going to make him feel uncomfortable or whatever. So, so in both situations, you've got kind of positive things modeled sort of in a way in that there are these conversations taking place. You know, Burnham is listening to Ash very sensitively, um, supportively. Laurel is actually, she, you know, she doesn't 
reject that statement in a way. She totally accepts it, even though it obviously really uh, bothers her. Um, and you're right. You also get this thing with Ash and Burnham because she has that line. She says something like, I, I could see my lover's hands around my neck or something. You know, it's very much sort of taps into this idea of kind of domestic abuse um, and so on. And then that episode, the penultimate episode of the first season where he's sort of saying, that wasn't me, that wasn't me, you know, please kind of believe in me. He's kind of take me back kind of thing. Very familiar to anyone who's experienced that kind of um abusive relationship in a way. Now, of course, in Ash's case, it's true. Uh it, it, you know, it wasn't him in some kind of essential sense, but it's absolutely kind of tapping into all of that. But also with Lorca, I mean, Lorca is a real, Lorca is almost, uh, because he's from the Mary Universe, as we find out and everything, he's almost like that imposter Kirk. Do you know what I mean? He is like the bad side. He is almost like a kind of character of Captain Kirk, this kind of confident, swaggering, uh, you know, uh, cocky captain. But he is actually, uh, you know, he sleeps with Cornwall under false pretenses, essentially by pretending to be someone that he's not, in effect. Um, there's an element of, he's described as grooming Michael Burnham, which, you know, was a controversial line, I know, at the time. And some people say, oh, that doesn't mean, it just means, you know, uh, trying to get to know her or something. I mean, grooming, certainly in the UK, I don't know if this is different in the United States, very specifically means um, targeting an underage person to try and sort of, uh, manipulate them into a sexual relationship, basically. So there was a strong implication, I thought, that that's what had happened between the two of them. And the fact that he was so obsessed with our Michael Burnham as well, was there was sort of suggestion he was sort of trying to get her back. So there's something very creepily, kind of sexually uh, sort of creepy about that as well. Um, there's also the fact that he's kind of effectively gaslighting people the whole time because he's he's lying to them, he's manipulating them, he's telling them stories about themselves. You, you know, with Burnham, he keeps saying, this is your destiny and this and this happened. And he, he kind of constructs this whole sort of fake reality in a sense around himself. So I think absolutely that season of, of Discovery was very interested in a lot of these um, issues surrounding this kind of Me Too uh, phenomenon one way or another. Um and you had the two, I suppose the two, those two characters, you know, Ash in a way is the male victim of, of sexual assault, or at least of something that we can kind of read as sexual assault. And Lorca as this kind of perpetrator, one way or another, who, you, you know, at the end of the season, um, there's that memorable scene where Cornwall comes and phases his bowl of, um, fortune cookies, you know, in a kind of act of like rage that she, you, you know, that she slept with him, I think is what we're supposed to interpret as that, that she kind of, you know, she thought he was the, the good Lorca that, that she knew. And actually he was, you know, he was someone else. And there is that kind of sense of there's definitely, um, I mean, obtaining consent by deception is not informed consent. Do you know what I mean? Would be one way of, of putting that, that yes, she consented to sleep with him, but she didn't know who he was and he had deliberately deceived her in a sense. So, you know, consent issues, we could, I mean, we could go into a whole sort of broader discussion of consent in Star Trek. Cause I know there are a lot of people who have issues with the inner light, with other episodes where kind of issues of consent in a non-sexual context are kind of blurry in some way because of kind of sci-fi shenanigans, as I say, and kind of plot machinations. But, um, absolutely in, you know, in that season of discovery, consent in, in a sexual scenario is something that is, that the focus is on repeatedly. Well, we are going to leave it there for now, uh, but tune in next week and you can hear me and Clara continuing the conversation, looking in a bit more detail at some of the on-screen representations of sexual assault in Star Trek. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. Oh, let me think. What's an interesting Star Trek sound effect? Phasers? See, that's tough because how do you make a phaser sound? 
I don't know if you can make that with the human. Yeah, Or you can do photon torpedoes. I'll, I'll, I'll just be the one that's pew, pew, pew. Oh, pew, pew, pew. Yeah. The discovery <laughs> phasers. Okay, cool. Awesome choice. Mm. Um, and to come back to the point, I think I'm deleting this scene. Literary tricks. What was it that caused him not to be with his Paul immediately after coming out? What was it that made that relationship strange? Yeah. And I think it was that Culber had really lost himself in a lot of ways. And while Paul was his anchor, uh, when he came back to Paul, Paul had learned something by losing uh, you. And I think he, I think he became the Paul that you needed. And I think that scared you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Until he sort of found himself again. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Because we've never seen all of those hairy mud bots again. <laughs> yes, th- thankfully. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would appreciate the like a mention in history in season three is like, oh yeah, here's this time where the whole galaxy was crawling with these different hairy mud bots yeah. and rounding them up took years <laughs> that's what brought down the federation harry mud that, bots. that was it it was harry mud bots harry mud bots oh no the line a star trek picard podcast we got a lot of answers in this episode which I, was really surprising mm-hmm. to me so there you know who's dodge and whatnot like, that's a thing i expected to find out in episode 10 going into this right. show right and here we are you know halfway through episode one and we know who dodge is and i'm like okay this is interesting i'm you know that's that's cool that we're getting a lot of information but getting that information is opening up more questions and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trackfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. 
Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right.